we're going to be going through a book series. We are going to be teaching from the book of Esther. And, uh, you know, I, at first, you know, I've read the story of Esther many times, and I read through it, and I said, okay, I already know what this is about. Let's see. It's a short book, so we could do it in church, and it won't go for like three years. We'll just go right through it. Um, and, all right, this is, this is a good one. And, um, you know, the past, like, couple weeks as I've been kind of pouring over Esther and just reading and reading and reading, I've been really blessed. It's been really amazing to me because God has just continued to um, show and, and prove that his word is alive, that's living. And, uh, you know, he, you could read the same thing, you know, a thousand times, and yet God can show you more about himself through that. And so, uh, you know, I'm excited for this morning, and uh, you should be too. Nobody's smiling that much. All right, there we go. There we go. All right, some excitement. Yeah. You can say, go Hawks, and everyone starts yelling, but, we, you know, we say, uh, yeah, Book of Esther, and we're silent. Well, all right, Lord God, won't you be with us this morning? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Lord, we're here to give you honor, to give you praise. We're gathered here humbly before you. And we thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that I would not be a distraction. We pray that your word would speak to us, that you would begin even now to stir things up in our hearts. Lord, I can point to one application, to two applications, to different ways that we can apply your word, but God, your word is alive, it is living, and it speaks. So Lord, we give you permission to speak into our lives. Holy Spirit, convict us of areas that we need conviction. We pray that you would meet us this morning, and you would be with us as we go through your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And God, we thank you for your mercy on us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, prepare to go through this book of Esther, when I was reading it, you know, I was struck by how many times that I've read this book and there were so many things that just kind of went over my head. And I just remember being in Sunday school and just remember being like, okay, great story, Esther king, you know, this, this, this. Okay, great. And I just kept going. So in order to better prepare you, this morning, you know, we need to step back. I know we're focusing in on this one book, but we actually first need to step back, take a step back, and begin to look at the Bible. Uh, Esther is the 17th book of the Bible, so we're going to start at the very beginning. And, uh, you know, for some of you, this is Holy review, and that's good because we want it fresh in our minds. And for others, you, this is brand new, okay? So you can go to the next slide. Now, I heard and I know that many of you love taking notes. You like to write things down. You like knowing where we're going. You know, some of us, we could just drive and say, where are we going? I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll go somewhere. Others, it's like, we're going to be at this stop at 1015, and then we're going here at 1029. And then we're, so, okay, for for you guys, I'm just going to put these passages, 
And you can write in kind of a title or something to, to let you know what that passage is about. And on your own time, you can read it thoroughly. Okay, so starting at the beginning, we're in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis 3. You can write down the fall. You can write down the battle begins. Okay, and this is a battle, as we've heard many times, with Adam and Eve, and the serpent comes and tempts, and they fall into sin. And thus begins this epic battle that we see throughout the Bible, and we testify in our lives about God and Satan, and they're going at it, and people are playing out these different moves. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Now let's go ahead a little bit. The next one is Exodus 17. Now, if you, remember, if you remember, the Israelites were captive. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses came. The Lord worked through Moses. He freed the people, and they crossed the Red Sea. All that, they escaped into the desert, right? Well, Exodus 17, you can just write down Amalekites, A-M-A-L-E-K-I-T-E-S. Okay, and I'm going to read this for you because you may not be familiar with this. So, um, Exodus 17, verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Okay, so Moses, whenever he held up his hand... Israel prevailed. They were winning in battle. But Moses, you know, just like some of you in church service, you're like, yes, Jesus. And you start getting tired and then tired. And then, okay, so he began to get tired. Okay, when his hands grew weary, he relowered them, and they began to lose. Okay, so, so then Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Now after this, get this, after this, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, we can skip forward a little bit to 1 Samuel 15. And 1 Samuel 15, we have King Saul. Uh, King Saul is, um, is brought into power, the uh, Prophet Samuel has been speaking the word of the Lord to him. And in 1 Samuel 15, start with verse 1. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay, he gives them instruction to just completely wipe them out. Okay. Well, what happens is Saul, he does not follow. He kind of does it. 
but he does it his own way. He's not really paying attention, and he's thinking, okay, we'll go to battle, but I'm going to do some things my own way. And he also kind of gave in to maybe what the people, the troops were saying to him, kind of suggestions, different things. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll do that. All right. So if we go ahead to First Samuel, it's still in 15, but 24 to 28. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Oh, sorry. In in 1 Samuel 15, their title you can write down, Saul and Agag. Because what Saul did, one of the things that he did was he allowed the people to, to take the plunder, to take some of the livestock, the best of things. And Samuel says, why did you do that? And he said, well, we brought it back so we can sacrifice it to the Lord. And the other thing he did was he allowed their king, the king of the Malachites, Agag, to survive. And he brought him back as well. So you can write First Samuel 15, Saul and Agag. Okay. Now we go to 1 Samuel 20. Now you can write down Jonathan and David, a covenant to save. Now Jonathan is King Saul's son. He would have been heir to the throne. He's great friends with David. He sees that God has anointed David to be king. And they're such great friends that he continues to help him. Right? And in this time, in 1 Samuel 20, we find that King Saul has been trying, he starts, you know, he's, there's a thought that, okay, it, it seems like he doesn't like me. He may be trying to kill David. So David and Jonathan set out to find out, okay, is he really against David, or is this just he was having a bad day? Um, and when it's confirmed that, yes, Saul is trying to kill David, Saul is maybe feeling the kingdom being pulled away from him, he's realizing that, okay, I messed up, now God's going to give the kingdom over to this other, to this young David. Now we find David and Jonathan, and at that confirmation in 1 Samuel 20, I'm going to read verse 13 to uh, 17. And Jonathan says to, to David, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So they made this promise, David, take care of me. Take care of my family, my people. In 2 Samuel 9, we see that David remembers Jonathan, and he seeks out one of Jonathan's sons, Mephibosheth, who's crippled in his legs, and he takes him in. It says that Mephibosheth, he ate 
at the table of the king all the days of his life, right? So remember that. David and Jonathan made his covenant, and David preserves. Now, there's so much more, but now we can begin our study of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther 1. It is, uh, like I said, the 17th book of the Bible. It's one of two books in the Bible that's named after a woman. The other is Ruth. It's also one of two books in the Bible that does not mention God. Doesn't mention God. Uh, Song of Solomon is, is other, but this book, it does not mention God. However, as you read it, as I've read it, you'll very quickly see that God is one of the main characters in this story. And, you know, I think it's so applicable to us in our lives because there's a lot of times where we don't see God acting maybe as a main character, but he surely, he is there. He is there. So speaking of main characters, um, I'm just going to lay out that uh, some of the main characters you'll find throughout this book are Esther, okay, Mordecai, who's Esther's older cousin. Esther is orphaned, and Mordecai, her older cousin, takes care of her. He looks after her, adopts her as his daughter. Okay. We have Haman. Oh, and before I go to Haman, Mordecai, this is important. Okay, get this. Mordecai, does anybody know? Who's Mordecai related to? That's true, Esther. So Mordecai and Esther, they are, who else? Jonathan. Or Saul, he's from the line of Saul. Jonathan, right? Isn't that cool? So Mordecai and Esther, these relatives of Jonathan. And who did these uh, you know, descendants from the line of Saul, right? And who did, they, who did Saul fail to, to destroy, to wipe out? Amalekites. King Agag, right? Okay. Haman, he's the, the evil character in the story. As we read through in later weeks, you'll see just the extent of his, his evil. But there's a history between Haman and Mordecai and Esther, right? Because Haman is an Agag. He's a descendant from this king Agag. Isn't that crazy? He's a descendant from this king Agag. And you'll see as the a, as a story unfolds that what Saul did not do now his descendants do. And like you said, God, he's unmentioned, but he is unmistakably present throughout this whole account. Right. Now chapter one that we're going to talk about today, um, chapter one we have some characters in there as well. Um, some major and some minor characters, and the characters are uh, King Ahasuerus, um, oh, which I did not mention. So King Ahasuerus, he's a main character. Um, Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. There's, he's also known by Xerxes. Maybe you guys, I don't recommend this, but if you've seen the more recent 300 movies, he's shown in there. He's this Persian king, um, but he's this incredible ruler in history. So Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. Queen Vashti, there's the eunuchs, they're the king's trusted men. Um, they looked over many of his private things. He, they were entrusted with his most valuable things, um, 
you know, his, his wives, his harem, um, and they would be close to him. So what do you know about people that are close to someone? They have an opportunity to speak, to influence, right? So they are people that he trusts with many of his valuable things. There's the king's wise men, his trusted panel of advisors, and we have many guests. We have nobles, leaders, servants, all kinds of people that are present. And we have the wives of the guests. That's important. Okay. All right, now we can start. Esther 1. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me. Um, I'm in the ESV, English Standard Version. Esther 1. Now in the days of King Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, six months. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of this palace to do as each man desires. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women. It was in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. If you're in the NIV, it says Xerxes. Um, But in the ESV, this king, although God is not mentioned at all, the king's name is mentioned some 190 times. 190 times. Okay. So you have this scene. We're, we're getting into the story of Esther. We starts out with this scene, and it's a scene of extra- extravagance. It's wealth beyond anything we have ever seen in our day. You have, to, you have to imagine that as he's saying, this king, yes, that king who reigned from India to Ethiopia, that's like the whole world, okay? It's like, hey, this is, he reigned the world, is what it's basically saying, what these readers would have said, like, wow. From sea to sea, he reigned. He has, in his control, he split up this area into 127 provinces, And he's so wealthy that he's going to throw a feast for everyone. 180 days. Most likely people came and went. Okay? And what does he do? He's just showing this extravagance. Even the wine that they're served, it's not like the cheap stuff. I was just talking to someone and they were telling me like, oh man, it's so crazy. Like I heard my friend's dad, he got this bottle of bourbon or something was $3,000. Okay, like, and I started to think, that's pretty crazy, but this king, 
he would have had the best stuff at his disposal, right? The most expensive stuff. That's what the king would drink. And this is the stuff that he's giving to everyone. He's just giving it to everyone, right? Archaeologists have found a piece in Persepolis that talks about Xerxes, and he's kind of proclaiming, um, and I'll just read a portion of that, but this is what he thinks about himself. You can imagine, okay? It says, I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. Ahasuerus is a big deal. The writer begins to paint this picture that Ahasuerus is this big deal. He's this king unlike you can imagine. His wealth, his splendor, his power, it's unimaginable, right? He's a big deal. Does he sound like someone that's used to getting his own way? Yeah, I I think so. (laughs) Let's continue in, in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was married with Moin, remember they had six months, and then after that he's, he has another feast. Maybe it was to thank these, these you know, special people that have come. Maybe it's also his staff. Maybe, you know, whatever. He has another feast. After the 180 days, he has a seven-day one. Okay? And on the seventh day, the height of this feast, when the heart of the king was married with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitta, Harbona, Bigta, Abagta, Zetar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, Jewish rabbis or teachers, they have a custom of, of imagining, of arguing, of talking with each other what might have happened or what they think happened. Or, you know, they have all these writings of, of uh, these great rabbis that are discussing. And um, in many of them... Um, or that, or in, I shouldn't say many, but in, in some of the ones that we have, uh, there is strong suggestion, or it's implied, that you have these guys, right? They're all, they're all guys there. They're all getting drunk. They're drinking this great stuff in one-off cups of gold. They're not mass-produced. They're one-off cups of gold in this amazing place. And you can imagine it was not a, a great party scene. Right? Their minds, the things they're talking about, all these things. They were not discussing godly things, put it that way, right? And so th- there's a strong implication that, that you have this king. He's shown off all his wealth, his power, like, look at all this I have. And now at the height, he's saying, whoa, whoa, wait. I'm going to show you my greatest treasure. I have the most beautiful woman in my possession. That's my trophy. That's my wife, Queen Vashti. You're going to see she's going to be identified because she has the royal crown. Bring me Vashti 
wearing her crown. Many rabbis in discussions say that this implied only the crown. Whatever the, the, the truth is, it was not, she was not going to be brought forth so she could give a speech or impress them with her character. It was solely to impress them, the, these, these men with her looks. That the king would say, hey, you're going to come here on display. I'm going to show you what I got. And she refuses. And those eunuchs, those eunuchs, you know, these were people that were close to him. They were known. They're named in the Bible, right? If one of them came to your doorstep saying, hey, this is what the king says, you know, okay, that's coming from the king because this, this is someone that is close to the king. He's able to have the king's ear. He's able to speak to the king and you have this one person coming to you. But seven of them are going. Okay, all seven go to the queen to summon her. And she refuses. So let's continue. We'll finish out this chapter 13 through 22. Then the king said to the wise men, The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him, being Karshina, Shethar, Admata, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memeka, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people in all the provinces of the king of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Memucan, he continues, he says, If it pleases the king... Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti, remember she was always referred to as Queen Vashti, now Vashti, just Vashti, okay. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So we have this king. He's shown you the vastness of his wealth and his power. He has 
control of all these things. He's brought forth all these people to experience, to see how big he is. And then in front of all these people, it's shown that even though he has all this power and all these things, he does not have the respect of his wife. And this all-powerful king with 127 provinces, he's put in his place in front of all his friends, in front of all these people he's trying to impress. And so he asked his advisors what he should do. And they say, you know, hey, get rid of the queen. Whether she was killed or just exiled or banished, you know, we don't know. But she's not the queen anymore. Get rid of her. When I think about my own life, I begin to think, how have I, I mean, there's so many things, right? But how have I maybe even looked at respect? Have I been like the king and said, hey, look at where I am. Look at who I am. Look at my position, my whatever, whatever, whatever. Respect me for that. Or have I come to people with honor? As we'll see, I think we'll see with respect, as we'll see with Esther, as this plays out later in the, in the story. How am I approaching respect? So we all want a little R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? So this week, I, you know, I encourage you to, to read through the book of Esther. Today, um, like I said, we're starting it off with chapter 1, and I wanted to give you this introduction, this, this beginning to this book, this story, which in the following weeks, we're going to see how God is present. In this place where these people, they were, there's Jews in Persia. At this time, they should have been going back to Jerusalem. They should have been following their customs, they should have been doing, but they're here. They're very much living secular lives. And yet God uses them. Yet God has a plan for the life, for the life of Esther. And through them you will see that God once again delivers his people. Even though this beginning chapter paints this enormous picture of the power and maybe even the futility of coming against this king. Right? So this week in chapter 1, I encourage you to reread it at home. I encourage you to think about how are you trying to gain respect? How are you trying to gain respect in your own lives, in your household, in your workplace? And how are you giving respect? Think about those two things. Like I said, the, the word is, is alive. And, you know, even as I was reading it this morning, I was thinking of many, many other ways that it applies to my life. So I'm sure you can think of a few. Um, won't you join me in prayer and the, the worship team will come forward. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's so amazing, even in our own lives, how short they are, is we can look backwards and we can see how your hand has been over us. We can see how even when we 
went against you. Even when we crashed and burned, when we blatantly disobeyed you, you've still been able, you've been able to, to, to move our lives. You've been able to just usher us in the right direction. Lord, I thank you for this book of Esther. I thank you for the account that you've given us of her life, of others surrounding her, the ways that they advised her and helped her. And God, I thank you for what you're doing in your people, that you're stirring them up, that you're speaking to them, that you're moving us, that while we're in the middle, that we're surrounded by all these things that sometimes seem overwhelming, that we cannot, you know, that's futile, that it's impossible for us to overcome, that you're there. You provide a way for Esther, as we'll see. And Lord, you provide a way for us. So we thank you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.